you want to support the Heart and Stroke Foundation, tell them, I want my money specifically to go towards supporting non-animal methods for the development of new stroke drugs. Um, and I wonder what would happen if people started requesting that their donations only be used for non-animal research. I think that's really powerful. This is Defender Radio. Hi folks, I'm Michael Howie, your host of Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers presented by the Fur Bears. I'm happy to report that I'm mostly over the scare I had with the bubonic plague, which left me nearly dead last week. Or, if you listen to my wife, who I'd like to point out, never went to medical school, I had a cold and sat on the couch whining. Again, she's not a doctor. But it's also a sign that it's winter, and if you're like me, you're growing frustrated with the number of fur-trimmed jackets out there. I'm keeping busy creating blogs and videos about fur and compassionate choices, all of which are based in fact and include citations, to help people learn why we need to make fur history. But if you want to help make a difference in another way, I suggest you check out the Fur Bears Giving Tuesday campaign. We want to show people how often real fur is sold as faux and highlight the need for a fur labeling act so consumers who want to make ethical choices and be fur-free can be protected. That means we need a microscope in our Vancouver office. We've identified one that has a solid resolution that will help us take a look at the individual hairs on fur products and actually take pictures so we can share it with the media and decision makers when real fur is labeled as faux. If you want to help us buy this microscope and build budget to purchase the potentially real furs, visit thefurbears.com slash Tuesday and make a donation now. Speaking of microscopes, I don't think many people are surprised when the notion of animals being used in research comes up. Of course, we, as animal lovers, don't like the idea as a matter of principle, but that it happens isn't that much of a shock. Well, at least for me it wasn't a shock, until I read the latest news release from the Animals and Science Policy Institute. More than 4 million animals were used in research in Canada in 2016, a 21% increase from the previous year. Included in this increase were the use of cats, up 68%, dogs, up 58%, non-human primates, up 53%, and pigs, up 70%. But it isn't just that so many animals are used. It's that so many animals are used for research purposes that aren't necessarily effective when there are more effective and humane options available. Dr. Elizabeth Ormandy, the Executive Director of the Animal and Science Policy Institute, joined Defender Radio to break down the data, explain the alternatives, and share how everyone, from school kids to advocates to researchers, can be a part of the necessary change. Before we get to the interview, here's your 60-second advocacy for this week, as well as a brief message from our supporters. The Animals and Science Policy Institute is a charity whose goal is to build an ethical culture of science that respects animal life by promoting the reduction and replacement of animals in teaching, research, and testing. The organization aims to accomplish this through education of the public, as well as conducting research projects into the efficacy of non-animal alternatives, providing up-to-date resources and information about non-animal alternatives, and collaborating with stakeholders in science and policy to develop new alternatives that reduce or replace the use of animals in science. They offer practical solutions for educators from the grade school level with virtual dissection and other tools to high-level stakeholders with advocacy and research. 
Individuals interested in supporting this cause and helping with the solution can learn more about the work, get non-animal alternatives into their schools, learn about policy tools and other projects, or donate at animalsinscience.org. Looking for a parka that'll keep you warm in Canada's extreme winters and not harm the animals? Check out Woolly Outerwear, a Toronto-based, made-in-Canada ethical company that utilizes military-grade technology to keep you warm and help save the lives of animals. Portions of every sale go to support the fur bears and animal sanctuary. I embrace my wild side by wearing Woolly, and you can too. Learn about their commitments to the environment, the animals, and the people they work with, as well as how to buy at WoollyOuterwear.com or anywhere on social media. Animal and Science Policy Institute released 2016 Animal Statistics, A Closer Look. And he put this out as a blog and as a press release. Um, and the, the headline really from this is that there's a 21% overall increase in animals being used, according to the Canadian Council on Animal Care. What does that mean? What are we looking at when we talk about this? Overall animal numbers have increased, as you just said. Um, I think the most meaningful thing for me is that actually the numbers this year are, have tipped over the 4 million mark for the first time ever yeah. in Canada. So this is the 2016, that's the most animals used in a year than, we, than we've ever seen. And that is despite the launch of a new Canadian Centre for Alternative to Animal Methods that was set up in, um, in Windsor granted only in uh, October this year, but there's, um, there are multiple disciplines within science that are generating all these new non-animal methods. So for animals for testing, for example, like the use of animals in testing, so that is regulatory testing for drugs, uh, medical devices, vaccines, chemicals, um, pesticides, you name it, like all of that stuff is tested on animals for its safety and also for how well it works, for its efficacy. Mm -hmm. And there is um, a really growing trend in science to try and figure out non-animal methods, especially for testing, which is great because um, regulatory testing, actually, if you crunch the numbers from CCAC, um, from past years, you'll see that regulatory testing actually causes the most harm to animals. It's the one purpose of animal use where the most harm is caused. So I think it's really encouraging that we have this scientific discipline of non-animal alternatives for animal testing, and there's all these really cool methods that are coming out. So I guess the burning question then is, if all of that work is being done, why have we seen a 21% increase in Canada in 2016 that yeah. now tips us over into like the most animals that we've seen annually in a year? And um, I don't really know, honestly. I, I can speculate, but I don't really know. And that to me is somewhat alarming. Uh, not that you don't know that we don't know, I guess. And I would assume yeah. that the regulations on reporting of animal use in research, which is, I argue, meticulous in nature to begin with, uh, would be straightforward. You know, if an animal is used, it gets marked down, it gets submitted. Uh, but based on some of what's written in this, this blog, it does not seem to necessarily be the case that it is straightforward. No. So our, the, the oversight system, I, I don't use the word regulatory for the way that we govern the use of animals in science in Canada because there are no actual laws um, mm. federally. 
So I usually just say it's like the oversight system <laughs> that we have. So the Canadian Council on Animal Care, that's the agency that released the statistics and they give annual number reports. Um, they are um, funded to operate by the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council and the Canadian Institutes for Health Research. Those are two government agencies that also issue funding for animal research. And so our system is set up in a way that if you receive funding from NSERC and CIHR, then you are required, you are obligated to comply with CCAC guidelines. And part of that obligation is to give your animal numbers to the CCAC every year. Um, the committee whose job it is to collect those animal numbers and submit them to the CCAC is the Animal Care Committee. They are an institutional arm of the CCAC. So if you are obligated to comply with CCAC guidelines, you are mandated that you must have um, an animal care committee. And the animal care committee, they review protocols. So if I'm a researcher and I want to use 150 mice in my study, then I submit a proposal um, on something called an animal use data form to the animal care committee. And that committee makes a decision on whether they will let my research proceed without any amendment to my pr protocol, mm -hmm. whether they want to see amendments or whether they decide, no, we're going to reject that protocol. So it's based on those, the animal numbers that are um, in those animal use data forms and get submitted to the CCAC. And I, I do believe there's some, there's some retroactive um, kind of tweaking of the numbers if you happen to use less or um, less animals than you were given permission to use. There might be some retroactive um, adjustment of numbers. Um, I think, um, and other people can maybe weigh in and correct me if I'm wrong, but if you want to use more animals than you've been given permission for, I believe that you have to run that through the Animal Care Committee again. Um, it isn't just a case of saying, well, I'm going to tweak the numbers. You actually ask, have to ask for that permission to use more. So that's how animal numbers are collected. And it gets kind of complicated because some animals might be used more than once, right? So mm -hmm. it's not just this one animal was used this one time. It was like, actually, we're doing a study that is a little bit longer in nature. Um, it was used for, for this procedure and then this procedure. So do we count the animal once or twice? Um, and also, you get animals that are used over over years. And so which year does it get counted in? Does it get counted in both 2015 and 2016? Um, so there are, there are kind of, you know, there are some uh, messy things to do with the data that, um, you know, need to be kind of um, kept in mind. And that's no one's particular fault, right? There, there's just, it's just the nature of data collection. It's not always as clean cut as it would appear on the surface. Um, but yeah, like I think that, um, you know, when, when the Animal Care Committee submit their data to the CCAC and the CCAC's job is to collate that data um, and they put it in the spreadsheet that they make freely available on their website. Um, and that's the data that I used to do our own analysis. And I break the numbers down in ways that I think people will find interesting. Um, like which species categories did we see an increase in since last year and which went down? That's interesting too. I also like looking at 
Okay, so the, the, there are two parameters that animal numbers are collected by. One is the purpose of animal use, so what was the animal used for? And the other is the category of invasiveness. What happened to the animal in terms of what harm did it come to? What's the benefit of doing that? Why, why is it important to break it down into how are they being used um, and so on? I do think it's important because we get, um, it tells a story then, right? It's, it's fine to say, well, over a million mice were used in what we call uh, science, mm. right? But it's actually really interesting to know, okay, well, how many were used in basic research? How many were used for medical veterinary research? How many were used in education? Um, once you break the numbers down in that way, you can get a better handle on okay, where are, the, where are the things that we need to do work? So if you see, for example, and I've got, I've got the table in front of me from our blog post, um, by far the most uh, animals used in category E procedures, so category E is, I'll just describe the category, this is procedures which cause severe pain near, at, or above the pain tolerance threshold of unanesthetized conscious animals. So it's by far the most um, most harm that would come to an animal if they're assigned to category E. Mm-hmm. When we break down the numbers by purpose of animal use, it's really clear that we can see that um, by a large majority, the most animals in category E were for regulatory testing. And so then that's like, okay, well, if we are in the business of improving the lives of animals, then that is a clear signal that um, we need to work on reducing the harm that comes to animals in regulatory testing, if not replacing them completely. And so I think that's why it's important to break down the numbers. It's um, knowledge is power. And once you can break down the data into these meaningful, um, it gives you these meaningful insights into where the work needs to be done. When I think of animals being used in science, and I, I would think that I'm probably in the average on this uh, with knowledge base, I think of rats and guinea pigs, and you think mm-hmm. of uh, all the old sad campaigns from the 80s when they used primates, but of course they don't do that anymore, and they don't use dogs or cats, and then you read the blog and see, oh, well, there's an increase in dogs, cats, primates, and pigs. Um, I yeah. How are they used? I mean, is this you know, oh, well, we let the dog sniff it, and if they don't like it, we don't use it? Or is it an invasive type thing? What, In what way are these animals, mm-hmm. who I think most Canadians view as intelligent and emotional, um, uh, especially with dogs and cats and primates, yeah. um, how are they used without maybe going too graphic? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um so I did do that type of analysis. And again, it's kind of alluded to in our blog post. So no cats um, or dogs were used for regulatory testing. So there were no dogs or cats used to test products mm-hmm. um, for their safety or efficacy. Um, so that's a plus. Uh, the majority of dogs and cats were used for education. And um, I can only imagine, I don't know this for sure, but uh, I can only imagine that 
species like cats and dogs being used for education or being used at vet schools to train veterinary surgeons. Um, there were no cats used in category E for any purpose. There were no dogs used in category E for any purpose. Um, oh, pardon me. There were no, I, I, I just said that wrong. So there were no, there were actually no um, random source. <laughs> this is where it gets complicated. So there, the cats and dogs are broken down into different categories. So there are purpose-bred dogs and cats, mm -hmm. and there are uh, random source or source unspecified dogs and cats. So there were no um, random source or source unspecified cats for regulatory testing, but there were some purpose-bred cats and there were some purpose-bred dogs used for testing. Pardon me, I, I, I got that wrong. So there were 48 cats used for regulatory testing that were purpose-bred, and there were uh, 4,391 purpose-bred dogs used for testing. And those are um, those are when they, they intentionally breed a litter or litters to ensure yeah. sort of a standard. Yes, and typically that would be beagles, yeah. lab beagles for dogs. Um, uh, I don't know the breed for cat, just usually a, a kind of typical domestic short hair cat, I think. Mm -hmm. um, when I say random source, um, that typically means that animals have been procured from shelters. Yeah. So um, when I said like, you know, there's a, a kind of um, some good news kind of woven in there, it's that actually there were no random source cats or dogs that actually ended up in testing labs. So it wasn't that um, animals were in the shelter and then ended up in a testing lab in 2016. I haven't actually crunched numbers for previous years. Okay, so yeah, the majority of dogs and cats were used for education. Majority were in categories B and C. So category B would be very like more observational, like behavioral observation, maybe giving them different food and seeing which they like best. Um, category C would include um, minimal restraint and handling and blood sampling. Mm -hmm. Category D, I do know that um, veterinary students who train to do spay procedures on dogs and cats, those are category D procedures. So uh, that's where some of those category D might be coming from is the training of vet surgeons to do routine spay procedures. For non-human primates, the majority were used were used for regulatory testing. Um, Forty-six percent were used for regulatory testing. Uh, majority were in category C. There were 107 non-human primates in category E for product development. Um, and there were some non-human primates used for education. So hopefully that gives a little bit of a picture. I mean, it's it's hard to kind of verbally explain it in an interview. Um, I, I'm I'm a visual thinker, and so um, the reason I do all this like data analysis, I, I make graphs and tables so that I can actually visually see the data. When we're talking about these animals, dogs, cats, non-human primates, is there a connection to any of the animal cruelty laws we have in Canada. Um, I mean, you know, you think about what may be mm -hmm. done to a dog in a laboratory um, for any mm -hmm. of these purposes. And if you did that in my living room, 
um, some of those things, I think it would be probably a pretty clear case. So is there a connection or is there a, a loophole in place? There are exemptions under the law. There's like some legal terminology written into the law. So there's a federal law with an animal cruelty article. That's the Criminal Code of Canada. It has a, a animal cruelty provision in the Criminal Code. Um, and there's also provincial animal cruelty legislation. So here in BC, we have the uh, Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. Um, each province has um, its own. Some provincial legislation does directly reference CCAC guidelines. Mm -hmm. Some doesn't. So BC, we don't specifically reference CCAC guidelines. We just have this terminology that says, um, if you're carrying out something that falls within generally accepted practice. And generally accepted practice is then an arguable, um, it's an arguable what that definition is. And that's where lawyers make their money on yeah. arguing what does generally accepted practice mean. Um, in Canada to date, generally accepted practice would include um, anything that happens in labs that is in compliance with CCAC guidelines. So you're exactly right. If you did some, if you did something like um, tested a product on a dog in your living room, then um, someone called in the to the, the province and said, well, this is animal cruelty, you could be prosecuted under the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act because you're not a scientist. You're not someone who is um, given license under that generally accepted practice umbrella. Um, but uh, if you are a scientist and you are in a lab setting and you are complying with existing guidelines, you're part of that um, culture that has generated the generally accepted practice, then uh, you would not it would not be necessarily prosecutable under any under any law that exists it's all very counterintuitive isn't it yeah it is and i think i've i mean i've made this point before in reference to the uk law so um we do have legislation in the uk the animal scientific procedures act and i think um when you look at the history of how that law developed it's really interesting so it, it was the first international legislation specifically pertaining to the use of animals in science um, is back in the late 1800s that it was put into place. And it came about through public lobbying after um, there were public demonstrations of animal experiments at a time when you know, there was, the, there was this public arena for science, like this, the, the, the growth of experimental medicine and physiology and, and things. And so um, experimental physiologists came over from mainland Europe and they gave these public demonstrations using dogs. There was public outcry. And um, there was a, uh, this mobilization of the public and the formation of animal advocacy groups that really lobbied the government to try and get legislation into place to ban the use of animals in experiments. And what the what the law actually ended up doing was saying um, instead of banning animal experimentation outright, it actually became something that was quite permissive. It was like, okay, we're going to let this happen under certain conditions and um, instead of scientists 
who engage in harmful acts to animals being prosecutable under the Animal Welfare Act for animal cruelty, they're given special license in the name of science. Um, and so the law in Britain is actually a permissive one rather than a prohibitive one. And I would argue protects researchers more than it protects animals um, in lots of ways. Because exactly right, if you, weren't, if you don't have a license to practice science and animal experiments in Britain, then you're actually prosecutable under a whole different act for um, any harm that comes to animals under your care. I'll tell you what, so, what, when I'm king of Canada, I'll put you in charge of writing some laws that will be a little more straightforward. Um, I feel like that's, uh, it. it's so convoluted. It's it's sort of this act versus yeah. that act and this loophole yeah. and that statement. And yeah. it doesn't need to be, but one of the times that this came up, and this this is something that's, it's a little out of date now, but I think it still applies, was when C246, so that was the Modernizing Animal Protections Act was being yeah. discussed. One aspect um, from one of our friends, uh, MP Robert Sopak, uh, a conservative in Manitoba, I believe, um, brought up a lot of various concerns, which I don't think were actually talked about at all in the proposed act. But he had um, two statements here, and I pulled these up, and I, I'm interested for your response to these statements. Um, so he said... Most, if not all, animal rights groups oppose animal-based medical research. Canadians must realize that most significant medical breakthrough results from animal-based medical research. Approximately 60% of all ca cardiovascular research is conducted on animals. He then said, I and hundreds of thousands of Canadians are alive today because of cardiovascular advancements, such as stents, implement, implement, implant, I can't talk anymore implantation of animal valves in human hearts and new drug therapies, all of which were developed using animal experimentation. To say we should stop performing medical research on animals is to say let's stop making life-saving medical breakthroughs. That is not acceptable to me or most Canadians. Mm -hmm. um, this is part of his speech in the uh, the House of Commons, and it's something he, yeah. uh, he kind of railed hard against. And he kept bringing up that example. Uh, yeah. I, again, even though C246 had nothing to do with medical research. Of course. Um, what what's your thought on that? And I'm sure this is something that you hear about in your position uh, on a regular yeah. basis. So how do you respond to that, sort of in the the short form and the long form? Sure. Um, in the short form, I would say the rhetoric that research saves lives is actually um, it's kind of like you know I, I see this. There's researchsavelives.org that has um, who would you rather and there's a rat and there's a, a, a young girl, right? And it's basically saying would you rather save the life of the rat or save the life of this young girl who could, could be your sister, your daughter, whoever. And I think it's actually just a false dichotomy in lots of ways. Um, the main reason being that um, emerging data is telling us that animal research benefits human medicine and creates new human therapeutic drugs uh, zero to eight percent of the time. And that's across disciplines. That's cardiovascular, it's cancer drugs, it's immunology, it's like, um, and that's not me just pulling data from thin air. This is multiple studies done by people who are way smarter than me, who are medics and epidemiologists and medical sociologists. and. Um, 
when I saw that translation rate, that zero to eight percent, then to say that research saves lives is not necessarily untrue. Animal research saves lives zero to eight percent of the time. I would say that that is shockingly low. And um, what happens to the other 92 to 100% of research that tax dollars pay for, animal is paid for in animal life, is paid for with diversion of funding um, away from things that would be more successful than zero to 8%, right? So I think that um, while, while it's a very kind of compelling argument that people can hook onto because it makes it personal, we all know somebody um, ourselves included, who have taken drugs that actually have either really helped with the condition or have actually saved lives, right? Mm. And so it's very, very uh, um, attractive to to kind of hold on to that handle that oh well, animal animal research is like um, this necessary thing. Well, yeah, it might have been zero to eight percent of the time. And so for me, that's just an unacceptably low translation rate to human medicine. And it shows me that we can do so much better, right? Um, I think that there's been no new stroke drug for the past 30 years, despite lots of animal research that has gone into that. Um, And so we, you know, I'm a scientist and I I understand that science is uncertain too. I wouldn't want that translation rate necessarily to be 100% because things fail you don't meet your hypothesis, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, like I understand that, but I think that that range of zero to 8% is just like, I, if, if I would have guessed, I would have even guessed higher. But then the emerging data from um, authors like Pandora Pound, Michael Brecken, Ari Joff in Calgary are really, um, it was it was actually this visceral shock to me, even though I work in this field. Um, so that's a long form answer that just says like this argument of kind of like, well, research saves lives. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a falsehood because it doesn't save lives all of the time, and in fact, it doesn't save lives even for the majority of the time. So that would be my answer, and um, I think that. What troubles me about the status quo of seeing animals as the gold standard for developing drug treatments for humans is that we're diverting our energy and resources and funding from things that might have greater success rates. And so um, who knows what medicines we could have developed if we'd have just embraced um, alternative methodology that maybe can tell us more because it uses human tissues that have been donated with consent. Um, you know, to quote uh, Thomas Hartung from the Center for Alternatives to Animal Testing in the US, we are not 150 pound rats. We're just not. And so there's, um, while we share a lot of genetic material with animals, um, and some things will cross over and some things will be able to be predicted um, using animal models and animal data, um, we are also necessarily different in our physiology and metabolism and biochemistry. Yeah. Does that answer your question? It does. Thank you. It sounds like you've thought about this before, uh, Dr. Ormandy. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, it keeps me, it keeps me up at night, frankly. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> One aspect of this, and this is a reasonable question in my mind, uh, although philosophically I disagree with it, but it's, it's, it's a reasonable question to ask, is let's say tomorrow we all agreed in Canada, you know what, animal testing isn't good enough, or the majority of animal testing isn't good enough. Uh, you, you quote your 0 to 8% uh, success rate abysmally mm -hmm. low for the number of animals who are killed um, and for the number of animals used, I guess, is the more appropriate uh, statements. And you state, you know, when we talk stroke drug, there hasn't been anything new in 30 years despite all this ongoing research. So we decide as a, a society, you know what, we're not going to do this anymore. Does that mean tomorrow we stop testing on animals? Does it mean over the course of five years we stop testing on animals or does it mean we phase out as we phase in new technologies? Hmm. What would that actually look like and what would it mean to the research community? That's a, it's a really good question and I think that the phase in of alternatives and the phase out of animal testing is probably the best scenario in that case because of course you have projects that are currently funded. So if we said stop tomorrow and you're just at two years into a five-year grant then, um, you know, we couldn't just say, well, we're going to pull pull all that money and you have to give it back. Um, so there's a, there, there are practical practical um, considerations that have to be made too. Um, what I will say is that I was at a meeting at, at a conference in August, the World Congress on Alternatives to Alternatives and Animal Use in the Life Sciences in Seattle, and my colleagues in the Netherlands um, were presenting their very ambitious plan to end all animal testing by 2025. So that gives you an indication of what some countries are committing to. So that isn't just animals for cosmetics testing. That's banned in Europe now. That's kind of a, a done deal for them. But um, what the Netherlands is saying is that we want to end the use of all animals in all types of testing. So for drug testing, for chemical testing, pesticides, all the rest. Um, ambitious, for sure. 2025 is, what, like seven years away. Um, so that's kind of the time frame that other countries are kind of looking at just for the use of animals in testing. The use of animals in basic research. So... Uh, basic research is research done to understand scientific processes, to advance our knowledge, um, advance uh, the, the scientific um, progress. It's more exploratory by nature. The majority of animals, at least in Canada, are used for fundamental or basic research. And so the challenge then is to say, well, okay, when we've talked about that zero to eight percent translation rate, that's usually just for applied research where we know that we're using this particular animal to try and predict this disease or develop, use this um, diseased animal to develop a new drug that will treat the disease that the animal um, has been given. And that's applied research. So for basic research, which is just exploratory by nature, there's uh, an even bigger challenge of how we replace animals in that case. And so um, I think in long answer, that's a really long answer to your question. I think that the use of animals in testing can be phased out um, meaningfully soon, like within a 10-year time frame. Um, given, um, 
if if we continue to develop meaningful alternatives that allow that replacement so allow that like you you talked about a phase out phase in uh phase out of animal stuff phase in of alternative methods like um we'd need that replacement to happen um for youth animals in basic research that's a much more uh difficult nut to crack and um it's much harder to imagine a non-animal replacement for a basic research study, right? Um, mm -hmm. Not to say that it's impossible. It's not to say that, you know, groups like ours won't be working on it in the future and really putting our minds to it. But um, I think that it's just more complicated than saying, let's stop all use of animals in science, even within a 10-year time frame. What can be done? I mean, we, we've heard a lot from you about, you know, what the state of things is and why it's not good uh, yeah. from the treatment of animals and what they are exposed to and they have to endure throughout all of this through to the fact that zero to eight percent uh, success rate of translation, like it's abysmally mm -hmm. low and that there are actually reasonable ways we could move forward away mm -hmm. from it. So what can everyday animal lovers do? I mean, I think it, you know, high level researchers they can say, I want to change uh, because they're the ones doing it. Uh, business leaders sort of in that same position. But what can an everyday animal lover do to actually affect change for the animals and the, the broad scope of animal testing? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a really, really great question because the use of animals in research is um, or use animals in science. It's a pretty closed shop. And if you're on the outside of the door, then it's really hard to think about, well, what can I actually do? I'm not invited to the conversation. Like oftentimes um, animal advocates, animal rights folks are excluded from the conversation. Um, the first thing that I would say is, um, and I say this to everyone, like just th there's, while, while information is kind of about these animals in science can feel confusing and um, like it's behind this closed door, I would encourage everyone to just to do their homework. Um, we as a charity, Animals and Science Policy Institute, are trying our best to put information on our website and make this information transparent. Um, call people who know about this stuff. Um, personally, I will always welcome phone calls if people have questions. I'll be honest when I say when when I don't know the answer because that information isn't available to me. Um, get to know the system that animals are used under for science, the CCAC, the way the governance works. Um, get to know the data that's provided um, and use it wisely. And so that's why when I said that knowledge is power, there's such little information out there about the use of animals in science, but the data that is provided, um, get to know it. Um, break it down in ways that are interesting to you, I guess. Um, we can, animal advocates can demand greater transparency. Um, as taxpaying citizens, I feel like we have the right to know what tax dollars are being spent on. Mm -hmm. And sure, I, I, um, I think like, you know, there's an argument to be made that, you know, if our, our tax dollars often go towards things where we don't have a say, but those things are usually 
um, governed by elected officials that we vote in to represent us on our behalf. For the use of animals in science, our tax dollars pay for it, but because there's no legislation, there are no elected officials, officials representing us on this issue. And so um, I think demanding greater transparency would be really important. Have a right to know what your tax dollars are being spent on. Um, I think that it's important to take care with language and be specific. So um, I often hear people talking about either animal experimentation or animal testing, and they are using that terminology to cover a whole host of different things. And it's actually really important to separate out animal testing, so whether that's the testing of cosmetics or regulatory testing, which is the testing of um, medicines, chemicals, and it's called regulatory testing because it's required by Health Canada. So there's animal testing, there's animal research. Are you talking about applied research or basic research? And then there is the use of animals in education. So that's an important use of animals in science that often gets overlooked. And it's something that we are working on hard at the Animals in Science Policy Institute. So separate out animal testing, animal research, use of animals in education. And the reason that it's important to separate those out is because they have different oversight systems, different stakeholders, different ethical issues that come up. So get clear on what each of these mean. Be clear about which one you're referring to. Um, and if we take each in turn, there's actually a lot that advocates can do. Um, I would say that in my experience so far, I've had certain people um, not appreciate the work that I do because they see me as being like pushing within the system rather than pushing to overhaul the system. <laughs> um, and so, you know, um, I think that reserving your judgment uh, from people who you might think are selling out just because they're using different strategies to you. We need everybody. We need people within the system and we need people pushing from the outside. Um, for animals and science in particular, because animal advocates are very often excluded from any meaningful dialogue, um, it's really important to support groups that have that inside position. Um, yeah. That's uh, one thing. There's lots of organizations that do have a seat at the table, so to speak, um, that um, would be very worthy of donor support. Um, so specifically, I mentioned those three categories of animals, um, animals in education, animals in testing, animals in research. Um, so if I might just take a moment to break this down a little bit. So for animals in education, um, this includes things like high school dissection, right? Like we, the way that we teach science in elementary and secondary schools, um, dissection is still such a prevalent practice in North American secondary schools. Um, it's an issue that we're working on really hard and um, we need people's support. The reason that we're working on it is because um, I believe, and, and at the Animals and Science Policy Institute, we believe that when you start teaching science at a really young age, that is implicitly teaching students that one of the right ways of doing science is to kill animals and take them apart, you're embedding this implicit culture where animals are commodities and tools, uh, rather than being subjects who we need to respect and replace wherever possible. And so we're tackling that issue 
for animals in testing. Um, in Canada, there's Bill S214. It's passed all three stages of the Senate. It's next going to the House. Don't let that bill die. Like, write to your write to your representatives and tell them how important it is that this bill passes. This is um, Bill S214 is the Cruelty-Free Cosmetics Act. It would um, put a ban on the use of animals in cosmetics testing in Canada and also ban the import of any um, finished products or ingredients that have been tested on animals elsewhere. Um, if you're in the U.S. and listening, um, there's the Humane Cosmetics Act. I don't know where that is. It's probably at the bottom of a huge pile in the U.S. But again, it's important not to let these bills die. Um, for other types of animal testing for like drugs, chemicals, pesticides, vaccines, I think it's important for people to know how the system works. So again, like do your homework, try and get your head around the regulatory system, because it's actually not that helpful to launch campaigns against companies to ask them to end their animal testing when the animal testing that they're doing is required by law. It's out of the company's hands. So efforts are much better placed to um, lobby government to change the requirements. Um, I would say keep an eye on the Netherlands. If they do meet their goal of phasing out all animal testing by 2025, then we have international precedent. Um, we, we can, what did they do? How did they get that to happen? Like what government leverage did they need? Um, and then support the development of alternative test methods. So we have the new Canadian Centre for Alternatives to Animal Methods in Canada it's at the University of Windsor. Um, support them. I believe that they will accept donations for for some of the work that they're doing. Um, you're welcome to kind of take a look at that organization and, and support them in whatever way you can, even if it's by being a champion on social media, right? Get the word out. Um, and then for animals in research, um, again, for applied research, get familiar with that emerging data showing that animal research only translates to human medical benefit zero to eight percent of the time. Educate your peers, your loved ones. When they say research saves lives, actually be like, you know, that's a really interesting thing that you just said. Like, here's some stuff that I've learned um, that shows that, yeah, research might save lives, save lives, but it's actually only a very uh, small minority of the time. And um, be mindful of the charities you donate to and be specific about what, what you want your donation to go towards. If you want to support the Heart and Stroke Foundation, then tell them, um, I want my money specifically to go towards supporting non-animal methods for the development of new stroke drugs or um, heart drugs or whatever. Um, and I wonder what would happen if people started requesting that their donations only be used for non-animal research. I think that's really powerful because a lot of charities do have discretionary funding um, opportunities set up. You can keep up to date with the latest non-animal alternative developments um, on our website, animalsinscience.org. We have um, a kind of latest news section. There's some amazing stuff coming out, 3D printing with stem cells, um, organ on a chip, mini brains grown in labs. Like it's, it's really astounding what's coming forward in terms of the non-animal methods world. So people are just sharing those stories. Um, so that it becomes common knowledge that it is possible to replace animals in many cases. So, um, yeah, 
I think that that's a lot. That's a lot that I just mentioned that people can do. But I, I think the main message is that even though many people might feel excluded from the conversation, they might feel a little bit helpless. There is actually a lot that you can do once you start breaking this down. And um, one of the best things that you can do is to support organizations that have a seat at the table. Make sure that we have operations costs to actually get there, that we keep the lights on, that we are able to still operate as charities on your behalf. Because, um, you know, we live in a world where um, competition for grant funding and, and charitable donations is really, is really tough. To learn more about the Animals and Science Policy Institute or get in touch with Dr. Ormandy, visit animalsandscience.org. That's it for this week, folks. Remember that patrons of Defender Radio will be receiving exclusive snippets from last week's interview with False Knees webcomic creator Joshua Barkman, and we'll hear more from Dr. Ormandy in next week's release. To get access to the Patreon-exclusive content and help the show grow, visit patreon.com slash defenderradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash defenderradio. Thanks to everyone for listening. You can get in touch with me and other fans on Facebook and Twitter at Defender Radio and on Instagram at Howie Michael. I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.